Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 63 of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Lind. And I am Kayla Moria, who has no problem saying the word 63rd. Well, whoop-de-doo for you. <laughs> I do. Uh, we are a paranormal podcast. Yes, we are. <laughs> Kayla, how are you? I'm great. I just said the word 63rd and everything went excellent. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to call you out. I just think it's funny. I'm doing extra excellent now that we learned that you have access to a soundboard now and I don't. So I have zero control over this and you have all of the control. It's true. You're going to say something and I will not appreciate it and I'll be like... That's okay. You share most of the uh, opinions of the listeners, and then I'm just over here like, I'm hilarious. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm done with the soundboard for a while. (laughs) Um, So I'm doing excellent. I just got through with a meeting for a very special Buffy-related project that I can't talk too much about, but I will announce more when I have more information. I am so excited. And I made Sean, and by made, I mean he bought it because I talked about it, and he was like, yeah, let's check it out. So I didn't really make him do anything. But I showed Sean Little Shop of Horrors last night. Oh, nice. I don't think I've ever seen it all the way through. You'll be a dentist. It's, It's, you can't really do better in the terms of Horror musical comedy from the 80s. I mean, and it's got that guy from Ghostbusters. Rick Moranis. Yes. It's also yes. got Steve Martin. It's got John okay. Candy. Eh. What? I mean, he's yeah. really only in like five minutes of the movie. Either way, it's amazing. Everybody okay. should watch it if you haven't. Me. I should watch it. Yes, exactly. Okay. But I also I need will, you to watch Hamilton best. first. We really just need to get that out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be able to understand your references, Kayla, and I'm sorry that I have not put in the extra effort. How are you doing? She asked. Kayla. Now's the time for the womp, 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 womp. <laughs> well, no, some of it was good. I have some fun updates. <laughs> okay. I went to California. Until, up until yesterday, the updates are fucking amazing. They are. Uh, let's start with the goodness. Yes. And then we'll... Do some of the badness, and then I'll I'll let just like end with the end of the goodness. Okay. So we end on a high note. Got it. Okay. So, California, sunny San Diego. It was sunny. It was beautiful. <laughs> I actually on the last day it rained, Ooh. which I was not mad about because apparently that rarely happens. Aww. So I got to see sunshine and rain. You've seen sunny so days cool. that you thought would never end. Thank you. That was going through my head, Uh, but I wasn't going to do it, but I'm glad that you did. Um, I drank absurd amounts of beer. We went to a bunch of different uh, craft breweries. I went to the Whaley House. Yeah. It was super cool. Yeah. I didn't see any ghosts in any of my photos. I did, however, upload them all into the drive, so if you wanted to look through and see if I missed anything, it's there. Um. If Kayla happens to discover any ghosts in my photos, we will, of course, put them on social media. So far, though, nothing. nothing. Uh, I have a bag for you, which... Oh, yeah, that's right. I'll go get it. For the record, 
for our listeners, I picked up this bag and I have not looked in it yet. <laughs> it's it's not anything big, but it is all stuff from the Whaley House uh, gift shop. Ghosts and gravestones. That oh. is the tour that we obviously have to go on. Obviously, it's in a uh, old town. San, uh, San Diego. It is that's where the Whaley House is. It's an old town. Uh, it that looked amazing, but we were only there like in the in the middle of the day. So we left at like one thirty. A sticker for my tuba case. It's going on it right now. My tuba case is right behind me. You got to tell them what it says. Special Agent, Old Town, San Diego, Whaley House, Paranormal Investigator. Fuck yeah, bud. It's going to go right on the side that says Halloweening intensifies. It's on the tuba case. That means it's official. Uh, Another sticker that I will figure out where to put that because it's too cool to go on the tuba case. Honestly, I like it. All right. Okay, so this. I was going to get you a ceramic mug that had this exact same thing on it. Um, but then I was worried that I would shatter it in the trip from San Diego to Minnesota. So I got you this instead. All right. This is a tea bag and spoon rest. Oh, it's one of those little plates that you put your... Oh! Oh, it's this perfect brew and looks like a teapot. It's got a cat with a pentagram on its forehead. Yeah. So offline... Last time we recorded together, Kayla and I spent a a good long time talking about tea. <laughs> so this is for all of that Zatico tea yeah. that she drinks. Because I can take with the Zatico tea, because you got to put it in a little scoopy thing, and it sits in. I can mm-hmm. take it out and I set it on this. Yeah. Perfect brew. Perfect. Perfect Perfect. Brew. And lastly, can't go wrong with a pair of socks with a pentagram on them. That says, shout at the devil. Now, granted, that is a Motley Crue reference. Yeah, it actually says Motley Crue on the top of it. But I don't care. I don't know why it was in the Whaley House (laughs) gift shop, but it was. I don't care. I liked it. Because it has pentagrams on it, so I'm immediately into it. Because you know what? I learned something recently. Uh, The five elements are amazing. No, I made a joke to my mother. Okay. A couple of months ago now. About my worship gay Satan shirt. Yeah. I made a joke about wearing it to a family function. Oh, how'd that go over? My mom says, you know, nobody's surprised when you wear that shit anymore. Well, she didn't say shit. She said stuff. Because my mom doesn't swear that much. But she basically pointed out that nobody's surprised when I wear things. Nobody's shocked. Okay. Now, mom, I feel like... In my heart, I know she meant that as, like, Kayla, people know who you are. Like, you do you. Right. But in my head, you know what I heard? A challenge. (laughs) I heard a challenge to wear more shocking shit around my grandparents and my family so that if worship gay Satan isn't enough, what do I got to do? So the pentagram socks, that's just an added bonus. Yeah, you can wear them together. Exactly. But, I love that. And then, I mean, who knows what the next step is? Who knows? By the way, Mom, I'm just kidding. I love you. I'm not. I mean, I thought it was funny. I'm not trying so. to embarrass you in front of the family. You're just being you. <laughs> All right. I thought we already established that. Right? Right? <laughs> um, 
So, yeah, the people at the Whaley House were fantastic. And so I got everything that you got. I just got two of everything, uh, except for I also have so you a got the haunted head. Brew uh, tea thing? Yes, I do. Cute. So we can match. So when we like start recording in person together, we could both have our little, we'll drink tea and put our little tea bags on the thing. Oh my yeah. God. So in addition to everything that you got, I also got a Whaley House sweatshirt. This is like haunted since like 1857. Nice. Because obviously. Nice. Um, and then I got this cool book. It's the history and mystery of the Whaley House. So the lady who was at the gift shop was laughing at me so hard. Because I had very little time to shop and because we were with like a whole group of people and I was just like grabbing things off of shelves and then I was getting two of everything and then I was like, what size Steve? What size? Not my Steve. Yes. RG Steve. I was like, what size Steve? And he's like, uh, small. Get a small. And I'm like, okay, now what? Uh, here's a book. And she's like, she was behind the counter and she's like, what's, you having fun? Is this your first time here? And I was like, okay, so you don't understand. I do a paranormal podcast, and I have to get everything for my co-host. <laughs> but everything I get her, I also want, which is why there's two of everything. <laughs> and then she she hands me this book. She's like, have you seen the History and Mystery of the Whaley House book? And I was like, add it to the pile. <laughs> and she's like, okay. And she's like, you know, I actually designed that book. So Aww. shout out to Teresa Morrison. Because it's it's a pretty cool looking book. I haven't read it yet, but I'm very excited. And I also have a haunted pets book that I got. So love it. You'll have to look at that as well. Um, uh, let's uh, let's go down to the badness, and then I can end with on a on a high note. Okay. Sad news, y'all. My Steve, my fella, <laughs> has got the COVID. Covida, she a cruel mistress. We, it's we you know what she morning. finally lost that he finally lost that game of uh, the game dodgeball. of dodgeball. Yeah, uh, as of this morning, I was negative. I managed to fly across the country and back and not get it. Um, but we'll see. We'll see how things go. Luckily, I have a house now because this would not have worked in my tiny ass apartment. <laughs> um, but we basically split the floors. I have the upstairs. He has the downstairs. Wish me, wish me luck in not getting it. As the Catholics say, peace be with you. Yeah, and also with you. <laughs> okay, now ended on a really high note. Girl, the food. Food in San Diego was amazing. I, I don't know if you all know this, but um, Mexican food is much more delicious in Southern California than it is in northern Minnesota. Oh, you mean where there's a much higher concentration of people who actually know how to cook it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. The enchiladas were amazing. And in fact, I was so obsessed with the enchiladas in San Diego that the day after I got back to town, I went up to the Mexican restaurant in Duluth on top of the hill right next to Kayla's work. And they were good, but they weren't as good. And then... Two days later, I went over to the Mexican restaurant in Superior, in the mall. Definitely not as good. Uh, Margarita at the Maya was pretty okay. Margarita at the other place, yeah, it was just pure sugar. Uh, So I really missed the margaritas, and I really missed the enchiladas, and I really missed the tacos. Um, But it was a beautiful, enlightening experience. 
that my my northern Minnesotan mouth had never had never been able to have before. To be cl- and I'm so happy that I did. To be clear, the food at Maya is authentic. That family is amazing, and they do know what they're doing, but they are limited by their ingredients. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, that's 100%. Yeah. Just like Azteca, yeah. which I actually prefer Azteca versus Maya. My personal opinion, Steve prefers Maya. It's all delicious. And thank you to it's our local delicious. businesses. Poo, poo, poo. Yeah, go eat some Mexican food in Duluth <laughs> at those places. Um, shall we crack into it? Yeah, let's do it. Wait, we're going to actually legit for like the first time in over a month. Let's legitimately crack into it and get a word from our sponsors. Woot woot. <laughs> Do you know who we haven't talked about in a while? Who? Earthrider Beer. That's who. And man, do we have a lot to talk about. Yeah, we do. They've got new beer and new events coming up that you definitely don't want to miss. First of all, they've got Bach beers ready to go. This is the perfect beer to usher in spring. They've got the Navigator Doppelbach. This is a malt-driven right-of-spring amber German lager featuring toasty caramel malt aromas and flavor. And they've got the Honeybach. And I know that you've been drinking this for a couple of weeks already. I'm drinking it right now. This smooth lager blends a floral honey aroma and flavor with toasted malt character. And what partners with good beer? Good music. Heck yeah, it does. And on April 13th, national touring folk and American blues artist Todd Albright returns to the Cedar Lounge with special guest Charlie Parr for the midweek Bracer and Blues meeting. Doors at 6 with music from 7 to 10. Tickets can be purchased for $16 in advance on their webpage, Facebook event, or Eventbrite, but they will be $20 at the door. For more information on their whole beer selection and future events, visit earthrider.beer. And we're back. This week, I'm going to tell you about a location that's been on my list for a while. Okay. I thought it was going to be much more in-depth because apparently it's extremely haunted. There's just not a lot of information on it online. That is always such a bummer. So, to clarify, this is a shorter story, but I'm making up for it with a listener request that we're going to have at the end of the episode. You know what? It's about quality, not quantity, Exactly. There we go. So, today I'm going to tell you about the Pierce Mansion in Gardner, Massachusetts. Awesome. I don't know anything about the Pierce Mansion in Gardner. Gardner, Massachusetts. So Gardner is a smaller city in Massachusetts. The population was 21,287 at the 2020 census. It's located roughly 60 miles away from Boston, to give you a scope of where it's located. Okay. Gardner is home to Dunn State Park, Gardner Heritage State Park, Lake Wampanoag Wildlife Sanctuary, Mount Wachusett Community College, and... The famous Pierce Mansion. Those were the highlights of the things I could find. I didn't recognize any of those names when I first looked this up. Oh, I recognize quite a few of them. Oh, nice. 
So Pierce Mansion is a beautiful three-story Queen Anne Victorian-style home that was built by Sylvester K. Pierce in 1875. Sometimes in the story, I'm going to call him S.K. All right. Sylvester Pierce was a wealthy businessman who achieved his fortune as the owner of the S.K. Pierce and Sons Furniture Company. He planned and had this house built specifically so that he would have a house befitting his stature. His his words. Okay. Seriously, like kind of sounds like a douche. Overcompensation. Overcompensation. Just like those dudes who are outside your window right now, just vroom vrumming their big trucks. Exactly. Wrecking our podcast. <laughs> He purchased a circa 1820 house on the corner of Union Street and West Broadway, moved the house, and built his mansion on its foundation. Wow. Okay. The house he built was this grandiose 7,000-square-foot mansion. It was built with intricate artistic details throughout its 10 bedrooms, 11-foot ceilings, and the craftsmanship was so intensive that it took over a hundred men a year and a half to complete it. Painstakingly, this masterpiece was fit for a king, which was his goal. Because he wanted to make sure that people, important people, saw it. Well, how are people going to know how important you are unless you have a giant-ass mansion? That's what I'm saying. Like His whole thing was, I am the shit and you need to see it. Okay. His guest okay. list to his home included some of the grandest icons of the era. It included former President Calvin Coolidge, Betty Davis, P.T. Barnum, and Norman Rockwell. And it also served as a well-known meeting place for the Freemason Society. Interesting. Unfortunately, while he could plan and build this elaborate home and everything went according to plan in the building process... His life did not go according to plan. Pierce, his wife Susan, and their son had big dreams when moving into this one-of-a-kind mansion, but their dreams kind of started to fall apart, sadly. Mrs. Susan Pierce inexplicably died from a bacterial illness just weeks after moving in. That is so sad. Yeah. After a year of mourning, Pierce married Ellen Pierce, a woman 30 years his junior, with whom he had two more children. Wow, a whole year worth of mourning to marry a woman 30 years younger? What sacrifices? Pierce passed away in 1888, leaving behind his new wife and their three sons. When Ellen Pierce passed away years later, the three sons bickered constantly over ownership of the mansion and the chair business. The Great Depression ended up slowing business, and eventually SK's youngest son, Edward, took control of the mansion. The mansion took up a lot of the sparse money left over from the business, and you know one of the things that uh, dark decisions tend to center around? Money, money, money! Or lack lack of money, too. That That's where a lot of decisions come from. Edward turned the mansion into a boarding home where son of the unsavory activities such as drinking, gambling, and prostitution became the norm. There were even rumors of murder. Allegedly, a prostitute was strangled in the infamous red bedroom on the second floor. Another boarder, a Finnish immigrant named Aino Sari, 
burned to death in the master bedroom in 1963. Oh, my God. Like, just him? Or did the whole bedroom go up in flames? He burnt up. Some believe that this was spontaneous combustion as there was little damage to the surrounding room. Gonna ask you next. There's another vague story that I could get zero details about, but it was mentioned in a few sources that there was a young boy drowned in the basement. Over the subsequent years, guests of the mansion have suggested that it is uh, extremely filled with paranormal activity. The ghosts of S.K. Pierce himself, Susan Pierce, and Edward Pierce have been reported, along with a nanny named Maddie Cornwell, a gentleman named David, who some think might have been the dude who strangled the prostitute in the red room, and then there's the ghost of the sex worker who was killed in the red room. There's also a younger boy, a younger girl, who was maybe the granddaughter of Pierce. I know, sorry. And then some unnamed dark entities in the basement, which apparently that's their most active space. So there's a lot of ghostly residents that have kind of been spread around. Guests have experienced everything from voices, chanting, full body apparitions, moving furniture, screens flying off of windows, slamming doors, the sounds of footsteps on the stairs and halls, sudden temperature changes, foul odors, shadow people, and an ominous lion's roar which can shake the house. That is like my childhood home with the lion's roar. So the lion's roar, people believe, is the former Mr. Pierce imposing his displeasure with the current state of the home and its residents. <sighs> Whatever, he'd be like a kitten's meow. <laughs> Some people have felt the pressure of hands actually pushing them. This is a very constant thing. One visitor like that. felt that a presence was attempting to push her down the steps, while another what? was almost forced out of a third floor window. Oh, my God. Paranormal experts have said that the entities in the mansion are the most advanced they have ever seen, as they can harness electrical energy and convert that power into the ability to move large objects and impose their will physically onto their current surroundings. That is something we've talked about in past episodes, like the stronger a haunting is, the more physical it can become. Yeah. Because of all of this fun stuff... Ownership of the home has been hard to pin down over the years. It's super unsteady. A book called Bones in the Basement described the recent homeowners, Edwin Gonzalez and Lillian Otero, as attempting to restore the house, which they bought in 2009. They had heard the stories but weren't convinced of the potential strength of the spectral energy. In the fall of 2011, they were basically like, nope, peace, and they abandoned their dreams and just fled the property and sold it as is they were like nah these have to be lies but then they weren't lies so they decided they to were very sell it. very real in a realtor.com article from may of 2015 a listing agent named brenda albert discussed when she began to believe that the home was actually haunted when she visited the house there was a smoky odor coming from the master bedroom when she asked the house manager at the time about it he simply stated we don't allow smoking in the house. Like he was just going to let it go and just dismiss it as that. But right. when she smelled it a second time, she pushed. She's like, nah, dude, it really smells like smoke in here. And 
finally, she received the explanation about Sari, who burned to death in that room where she initially smelled it. Uh... And that's the gentleman we mentioned was possibly from spontaneous human combustion. Okay, but a person on fire smells very different than smoking. You're true. Or was that just his, his like... But, like, we're talking about we years of later odor. And that, that, like, we don't allow smoking in the house was just him trying to, like, write it off. Right. He died in that room and he burned up, she said. It's kind of odd. Albert said there have been seven recorded deaths in the house, which cue the, you know ominous organ music but even then the... that was the wrong button <laughs> you're really just like <laughs> struck with that that trauma that's that sad trauma music <laughs> calls to you <laughs> it's green <laughs> you just keep pushing the green one it's not the green one it's never the green one <sighs> But then, ever the realtor, she was sure to add, after she pointed out about the seven recorded deaths, that the house is absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it doesn't matter how many deaths there have been. This is a steal of a deal. You'll, you would, you'll, you'll die to <laughs> see it. I don't know. Previous it's homeowners. Late. It's like 11. <laughs> Previous homeowners have taken great strides in uncovering the secrets of this home. Well-known paranormal groups, such as those from the TV shows Ghost Hunters, Ghost Adventures, and My Ghost Story, have visited the home to learn more about these possible hauntings. The stories of the home have been captured in books such as Haunted Massachusetts and Bones in the Basement, Surviving the S.K. Pierce Haunted Victorian, which was a book written by Joni Mahan, which chronicled the previous owner's experience in the mansion. The house has been cited as the number two most haunted house in Massachusetts and the ninth most haunted house in the United States. It's the number one most haunted house. I did not look it up because that's not the house we're talking about today. Okay. The last available update I could find on the home was from ABC News. The S.K. Pierce Mansion was sold in July of 2015 to Robert Conti, who was a gentleman from New Jersey. He has this history of creating these big kind of like circus style haunted attractions. He runs a traveling haunted circus and he is planning to restore the house and open it to the public for historic ghost tours. And he's also planning to let guests stay overnight. He said, I didn't really come into this believing in ghosts, but the minute I walked into this house, I was overwhelmed and had to excuse myself and get a piece of candy because I thought I was going to pass out. His words, not mine. Okay. But maybe that was just me psyching myself out, he said. You can book a visit on their website, skhauntedvictorianmansion.com. On their homepage, they have a specific note. This attraction is not for the faint of heart. There is a good possibility that you will witness paranormal activity. The entities in this mansion are extremely advanced and have demonstrated a unique ability to impose their will physically on guests. For this reason, a detailed injury waiver must be signed by each guest prior to experiencing the SK Haunted Victorian Mansion. 
Please do not behave in an antagonistic manner towards these entities at any time as you may be placing yourself or other guests in danger. And seeing as ghost adventures visited there, I'm wondering if they made Zach Bagan sign that waiver. Did you watch the episode? I did not because I, I couldn't. I had to watch the episode. Like, I had to watch Ghost Adventures for the last few stories I did and I'm over it. But Yeah, you've been watching a lot of Ghost dude, Adventures recently. I'm over it. I'm so over it. But just out of curiosity's sake, not that we're going to Massachusetts anytime soon, I did go back to the website since doing this initial mm-hmm. research just to see. And they are announcing opening it in 2024 in fall. I mean, that gives us a lot of time to plan. That's what I'm saying. So that is the story uh, of the Pierce Mansion uh, in Massachusetts. Okay, we're going to try this again. I figured it out. <laughs> I got the right one. I feel very uh, accomplished right now. Uh, when you should feel accomplished because that was a good story. Thank you. All I did was push a button. <laughs> So on a skeptic scale of para to normal, para being five, normal being one, what would you give the Pierce Mansion? You know, there's, as you said, not a lot of information. However, I'm going to give it a 4.5. All right. I am going to, in the very, very, very rare instance, I'm going to give this a five. Yeah. Because, yes, there's not a lot of information out there on the internet like some things i can find a million things on but this just it it creeped me out and there's something about the spontaneous human combustion and the fact that it is rated so high number two in massachusetts number nine in the u.s i'm just saying it's haunted i have no doubt that if we went there it's haunted i mean i'm definitely willing to go there and double check and if it truly is haunted, Kayla, I will up my 4.5 to a full 5. In the event that we one day go to Gardner, Massachusetts, yep. we will like refer back to here and be like, you know what? I'm giving it that extra 0. 0.5. Or moving it down. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know. I could I could change it. I could go either way. Exactly. What do you got for me this week? But first, a word from our sponsors, but we don't have a beer to open, so just pretend this is the sound. Crack. (laughs) So realistic. (laughs) So we talked about upcoming events and one of my favorite regular events is starting soon the earth rider summer market that's right it starts next month and earth rider is actually looking for vendors to join in on the fun they are looking for a range of vendors we're talking produce plants candles pottery vintage handcrafted art podcasts well they don't have podcasts on their list but they did say Have something to sell that's not on the list? Message us, and we'd love to hear about it. I suppose we uh, wouldn't fully fit in there. We don't have anything to uh, 
sell per se. I just want to be surrounded by all that creative craftsman beauty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're interested in participating at the Earthrider Summer Markets, email events at earthrider.beer for more information. And be sure to check out the Earthrider Summer Markets this season, the first Sunday of every month from May to September at the Earthrider Festival Grounds. While you're there, you can stop in at the Cedar Lounge Tap Room and pick up any of your regular or seasonal beers to go right from the cooler inside. For more information and to stay up to date on the events at Earthrider Festival Grounds this summer, follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Earthrider Beer. A boom. A ch ch ch. We're back. Nice. <laughs> nice. Okay. I like that. <laughs> All right. So, uh, for you. From me, I have Union Station. Union Station, like in California? Nope. In New York? I know I said I was going to do a California episode, but I didn't. Okay, where is Union Station? Utah. Utah. <laughs> I went to Utah. Yep. All right, so let me let me tell you a little bit about Union Station. All right. All right, so in the late 1800s, as the Union Pacific Railroad was laying tracks through the western United States on its way to complete its transcontinental rail line, there were four potential cities with the opportunity to house the train station that would serve as the junction of the railroad travel into the Intermountain West. In other words, Whoever got a chance to have the train station in their town would get all of the benefits from the Transcontinental Railroad. Okay. Tourism. Industry. Other catchy buzzwords that, uh, you know, they threw around while trying to rally the townsfolk around the idea of having a train station. (laughs) Industry. Industry. Tourism. I just couldn't think of a third one. So, but I knew that I know that there is one. And thanks to the very generous donation of land by a man named Brigham Young, like several hundred acres, Ogden, Utah, won out. Brigham told the United Pacific Railroad that they could have his land in order to build their two railroads, which I assume is one going either way, if and only if they would also build the yards and the station in West Ogden. And the Pacific Union Railroad wasn't run by no dummies, so several hundred acres for free. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Easy. Absolutely. You're like, yeah, West Ogden, let's do it. As we talked about last week, location, property size, like it's all important. Location, location, location. That's what people say. So in 1869, Ogden became the junction city with its first railroad station. Okay. A two-story wooden-framed building that, for some reason, was built on a mudflat on the banks of a river. So wood on mud on river sounds like a bad mix, but I'm guessing that comes up later? Yeah, so according to Wikipedia, quote, local newspapers complained about, among other things, the need to walk a quarter mile of wooden boardwalk over swampy ground to reach the station (laughs) which yeah yeah that sounds really stupid sounds like my yard in the spring 
mine too. Luckily, I have a teeny ass yard, so it's very little mud you have to walk through. So the Union Pacific and Central Pacific, the yeah. railroad guys, put their heads <laughs> and resources together to create the Ogden Union Railroad and Depot Company. And this new collab would be in charge of the construction and management of the new Union Station. This newer, fancier train station was not only made of brick, unlike the old one, which was wood, uh, it also had a large clock tower, which sat in the center of the building with two wings on either side jetting out from it. It contained 33 hotel rooms, a restaurant, a barber shop, and a bunch of other conveniences to local travelers. Perfect place to hole up in a zombie apocalypse. Right, and I'm just going to go ahead and go out on a limb here and assume that this one was also not built on a swamp. Nice. And the town, really amped about the cool factor of the train station, then constructed a tunnel that ran from the station under 25th Street, which people could use to deliver supplies to the businesses along 25th Street, and travelers could use it uh, during shitty weather to get to the downtown hotels. And Ogden continued to grow. And the Union Station, it got busy. It became the largest railroad center in the West, and by 1889, a train would come through the station every 15 minutes. According to one source, quote, During the early part of the 1900s, the depot handled 76 passenger trains a day. By the 1920s, Ogden was experiencing explosive growth in railroad traffic, and the number of freight and passenger trains grew almost daily. But then, as things so often did back then, tragedy struck. And in 1923, a fire broke out in the hotel room. Um, apparently, someone left a, uh, an iron on a pair of pants. And it destroyed the station's interiors, leaving the walls and the clock tower in, quote, a fragile state. Does your... Uh soundboard have the space right now to go womp, womp, no that is not the right sound all right we're gonna need more practice with this <laughs> all right we'll get better at this i promise <laughs> but surprisingly no deaths or injuries were reported in the fire Amazingly. Yeah. <laughs> you used the right sound. I used the right sound. Yay. I just do that again for using the right sound. Um, and despite its current state of uh, charredness, yeah. I don't know, uh, business continued just on the first floor at least. So it was like the train stuff. I'm guessing that the hotel wasn't really very usable anymore after a fire. And although the folks at the Ogden Union Railway and Depot Company were making bank, the town folks were really pumped to get a brand new station. Like, the other one burnt down, let's build a new one, and let's make it a little bit more modern. And the railroad bosses were like, oh, it's fine, come on now, <laughs> it works. It's just a little toasted around the edges, it works. <laughs> just a little toasted. And then it wasn't so fine. You see, because of the fire, the cashier's office was moved out onto the train platform. 
which maybe seemed like a good idea at the time, uh, until a stone fell from that now fragile clock tower, hitting a railroad clerk, killing him instantly. Frank Yenser, who had been working at the railroad depot for about four years, had recently been promoted to the cashier's office. Well, one day, he was at the cashier's office, I assume continuing all of the good work that got him promoted there in the first place, uh, and then there were men above them repairing the fire damage on the roof. They had been using roof supports, and everything was going fine until a huge gush of wind knocked one of the roof supports loose. It hit one of the stone, like, decorative corners located on the building's facade, and a 250-pound stone fell and hit Frank, killing him instantly. Ouch. Naturally, people were pissed. (laughs) They asked for a... (laughs) Yes, naturally, people were pissed. (laughs) They were pissed. They asked for a new station, and then the company was like, no, it's fine. And they're like, no, we're mad. So after a huge outcry from the people of Ogden, the railroad folks finally gave in and agreed to build a new station. So they tore down the old building and built the now current Union Station on top of it. And the Union Pacific Depot opened its doors in 1924. And it was gorgeous. Gorgeous. Ogden historian Richard C. Roberts described the new depot as... Its architectural design is Italian Renaissance of the style which flourished in the 15th century in Europe. The building is 374 feet long and an average of 88 feet wide with a waiting room of 60 feet by 112 feet and a ceiling height of 56 feet. He really likes to go into the details. The ceiling and roof are supported by six huge wooden trussles which are made from Oregon or Douglas fir. The trusses, which were highly ornated with brilliant colors and attractive designs, which have since been painted over, and the roof is of a Cordova Spanish tile. The brick is a pink puff brick, produced in Ogden and faced with Boise sandstone. The two main entrances on the east side of the building are carved Boise sandstone. Boise sandstone everywhere. Uh, The design in the sandstone are of fruits, featuring mostly clustered grapes. Over each entrance is a carved buffalo. You lost me at pink puff stone. And you know what? It's pink buff brick. (laughs) You said puff stone. I might have said puff stone. (laughs) You know what? Uh, Hold on. And it was gorgeous. I'm talking, it was long, no, fuck it, it was wide, in the, it was tall. Leave in the puff stone, leave in the puff stone, leave in the puff stone. Anyway, it was fancy as shit. Okay. Okay, so it even had a fountain that was built in front of it with flower beds and trees and green space for people to hang out. And there was this really funny note that I found in one of my sources that I also have to tell you about. Okay, so... The new station was opened and it they had their dedication ceremony in, on November 22nd of 1924. And they took a bunch of publicity photos as uh, one is wont to do. Absolutely. And one of the photos is of like 13 young women who are pulling in the very first train to the station by ribbons. 
Ribbons are attached to the train. They're pulling it into the station. Obviously, it's moving on its own because Ribbon cannot hold up the weight of a train. Um, but, you know, yeah, classic 1920s white people stuff. And the photo somehow made its way all the way to an Italian newspaper who then shared the photo of these 13 women pulling in a train with Ribbon with the headline, Curious American Custom. <laughs> Anyways, during the late 20s and early 30s, the clientele around Ogden went from fancy, well-to-do type to a bit more of the uh, seedy, underbelly kind of folks. That super cool tunnel that was under 25th Street became the place to commit crime. Do drugs. Obtain alcohol during the prohibition. Drugs, yes. Sex work wasn't great. I mean, I'm sure the ladies were fine, but... Be gay, do The whole crime. situation wasn't great. Yeah. Then World War II started, and the military used the trains that ran through the depot to move troops across the country to military bases and deport destinations, as well as to transport the wounded to recovery centers via hospital train cars. And then, on December 31st, 1944, a mail train ran into a passenger train near the Union Pacific Depot killing 48 people and hurting 79 others. And it was referred to as the Bagley train disaster. Ooh, that sounds brutal. The downstairs of the station was then converted into a temporary morgue for the bodies. And those people definitely didn't get their bills on time. No, and imagine all of the folks who were waiting for letters from their loved ones who were at war. Imagine all those all... people waiting for their penny savers. Oh my God. God, right? Where are all the penny savers? <laughs> so sad. But the trains kept on chugging along, and by 1946, 140 trains traveled through Ogden every day. Sounds absurd. Yeah. And then came the Vietnam War, and the Union Pacific Railroad was used to transport the bodies of the soldiers, each in their own individual caskets, to the Union Pacific Station in Ogden. Their coffins stacked high on the loading docks with their individual routing tags on them to ensure they found their final destination with their families. And then, in 1961, due to a 7% rise in property taxes, the Ogden Union Railroad and Depot Company decided that the depot had outlived its usefulness, as well as its ability to turn a profit. And then they turned the whole operation over to Amtrak in 1971. Such a lush history. And then suddenly, 7% raise in taxes, and they're like, no. We're done. Over. That same year, the Ogden Union Station was placed on the National Register of Historic Places. The next year, the Bertha Eccles... Call it Eccles. The Bertha Eccles Community Art Center was established in the building, and soon it would also house an event center, a theater, multiple museums, galleries, and a bunch of ghosts. Of course. Guests and staff of the Union Station will report seeing faces in the windows, unexplained voices, and footsteps walking up and down the hall. Um, a lot of them seem to be attributed to that disaster where the two trains collided with each other. Mm -hmm. That seem that makes sense because of the like you gave a lot of history for that, but that seems the most tragic. 
Yes. Somewhere along the line, I saw that in addition to the people that were killed in that accident, there were 41 people that had officially died at the station. But they really only told us about Frank. Oh, So I don't know who those other folks were. That's not true. I'm going to tell you about at least one more later on. Okay. People claim to experience a worker of the century, Frank Yetzner, uh, who after being crushed on the job by a 250-pound stone, is still hanging around. He is believed by some to be the cause of lights turning on and off by themselves, as well as elevators traveling up and down of their own accord. Folks will often hear the sound of children laughing and playing in the main lobby. Ew. Uh, as well as see military men dressed in old-fashioned uniforms just meandering about. There is a lady in blue. Well, that's a new one. I know. We don't get a lot of ladies in blues. We got black, red, white, but never blue. Anyway, visitors and staff are said to be frequently startled by a disembodied, distraught woman wailing. Yeah. Folks will sometimes catch the sight of a woman dressed in a radiant blue dress running through the old rail yard. Uh, sometimes she wails. Sometimes she's just running. And according to hauntedhouses.com, the story behind this woman could stem from an accident that occurred in the middle of the rail yard. As the story goes, a groom told his fiance that he was calling off the wedding and ending their relationship. And to add insult to injury, he also grabbed her wedding ring from her and threw it on the train tracks. Like, fuck you. Apparently, the distraught, no longer to be bride, blinded by tears, ran screaming to fetch her ring and then was hit by a train. Ooh, brutal. I literally have brutal written. (laughs) Fucking brutal. Fucking brutal. There is an entity referred to as beauty. Beauty, and I don't know why he's called that. I googled what Hudi means, which is Y E H U D I, and it said that it's based upon a Hebrew word that means from the kingdom of Judah. So I think I think it means that Hudi implies that this spirit is Jewish. Okay, it means Jew. I think anyway, Hudi is said to chuckle when he sets off alarms, has been known to touch female visitors, and will open windows that are very high up that no one can reach to be able to close. Mm. Which, looking at the definition of beauty, now seems like it might be an anti-Semitic thing to call him. Like, oh, what? okay. I don't know. I didn't like it. If it you, made it weird. If you know what that means, please tell us so that we know where we're standing. Yes. Because we I'm don't standing know. with the fact that it doesn't seem to be someone specific's name. And I think maybe some people are kind of just jerks. Yep. Other things that people see in this station is that there are mists and shadows that are seen moving through the grand lobby. And then there's another female entity that likes to wander around the second floor. She is thought to be the spirit of a former sex worker who died. And she will often try to approach like specifically men when she sees them. And I don't know what she does when she gets to them. Maybe she just disappears, but she never approaches women. Okay. Spooky. Okay, that tracks. Yep. And uh, that is the story of Union Station in Ogden, Utah. I swear I won't use the buttons this much in future episodes. <laughs> 
You're just so enthused because you have them now. All right. Look, I got a sweet new microphone. I got some fancy buttons. I'm excited. On a skeptic scale of paranormal, I'm giving it a four. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I th- I think I'll give it a four, too. And I feel like the four is pretty self-explanatory. There's a lot of haunting activity there. I don't need to expand upon it. It's a good, solid location. And uh, maybe next week I will get my shit together and actually do a California location. <laughs> Like I said, I was going to. So, are you ready for our listener story thingy majigger this week? Yeah, this is a new thing for us. I'm excited. So, in lieu of a listener story or a Reddit story today, I have a listener request. So, okay, my partner, Shawnee, as all of the listeners that are regulars know, um, Shawnee has a friend named Carolyn. They play D&D together. And Carolyn, whose pronouns I do not know, so I'm just going to say they, just started listening to the podcast. Hi, Carolyn. Okay. Welcome. Welcome. You're very recent, so it might even take you a couple of weeks to get caught up. I don't know if you're like a backwards and forwards listener or a whatever comes out listener. So when you hear this, hi. Thanks. Hello. Apparently, at their last D&D meetup, Carolyn was wearing a shirt from a place that they toured in Walker, Minnesota, that's supposed to be haunted. Okay. Chase on the Lake. Have you heard of it? Yes. Why have I heard of that? Maybe because it's haunted. (laughs) Carolyn asked if we'd talked about it on the podcast before, and we hadn't. So I figured now was the time to give it a shot. So I guess technically it's not a listener request, more like a listener suggestion, but still it's new for us. So I'm, fuck it. I'm calling it a listener request and we're going with it. I think it sounds like Carolyn requested it. (laughs) So um, I did a little digging. There's not enough information to make it a full story. Here's what I did find. And full disclosure in the middle there, I go on a bit of a tangent, so... I mean, I love your tangents, though, so I'm okay with that. Chase on the Lake is located at 502 Cleveland Boulevard in Walker, Minnesota, right off of the shores of Leech Lake. Fun fact, my dad used to take me fishing at Leech Lake, and apparently he would tie me to a tree so that I couldn't wander too deep into the water and drown. Okay, so we're talking uh, like like a leash, like you had a little bit of a yeah, lead? Yeah, I literally rode... Okay. Kid on a leash, but with a tree. Okay, okay. For a second, I thought you meant like a like damsel in distress tied to a tree, so you wouldn't wander off. And I was like, no, hey, like what? here's one end Your of the rope around the tree. Give you this much, like this is how deep you get into the water before you would might drown. So, okay. I mean, I think that seems completely reasonable. But anyway, back to the hotel. They've got their own restaurant, which is called the Five O Two Restaurant with patio seating. An Aveda Spa. Fancy. The Chaser's Bowling Alley and Indoor Heated Pool and Hot Tub, which is apparently in the basement. All year round, they've got outdoor activities, uh, fishing, swimming. They've got their own private beach and boating. In the winter months, you can do uh, snowmobiling and fishing for walleye, like ice fishing. That makes sense. This is Minnesota. And apparently they have ghosts. Awesome. According to historical records, prior to the grand expansion of the Chase Hotel, the original hotel was called the Pomeda Hotel, 
Its basement was used as a temporary morgue for dead soldiers during the 1898 Battle of Sugar Point. I wonder if people knew when they made temporary morgues and hotels and train stations that it basically guaranteed that like a hundred years from then, they'd be ghosts. (laughs) According to an article by the Minnesota Public Radio, the Battle of Sugar Point occurred because relations between Leech Lake Ojibwe and the U.S. government were deteriorating. Here's where I get into my tangent. So there were these conflicts over timber sales on the reservation. Uh, The Ojibwe at Leech Lake existed mostly off of sale of timber, specifically from right, their reservation. the rest of their land was taken from them. Right. So the timber companies fucking found a loophole and were exploiting the shit out of it. There was this loophole that said if they found dead pine, they could sell it anyway. Basically, if they found dead pine on the reservation, they could sell it and just pay the Ojibwe part of the profits. Dude. So loggers would set brush fires to acres of reservation land to scorch trees so that they would look dead and then harvest that wood and sell it. So Ojibwe leaders were super frustrated and they pleaded with the U.S. government (sighs) to stop the practice and the government did what the government does, which was like um, pretty much nothing. Screw them over? Yeah. So this didn't cause the battle but it just kind of sets the scene for why things were extra tense. Yes, white people were stealing Native folks' money so in really shady ways. In an unrelated event, a U.S. deputy marshal arrived on the reservation with orders to arrest two band members for some sort of crime related to liquor violation. And while he was there, he was overtaken by other band members that set the two people they were there to arrest free. Mm -hmm. The deputy marshal went back to his base in Walker and sent a telegraph to St. Paul saying, hey, help me arrest these two dudes and everybody that just, like, let him free. On the morning of October 5th, 1889, they boarded boats for Sugar Point. And what happened after that was a series of unfortunate events that started with an accidental gunshot from one of the inexperienced white soldiers that led to an all-day battle between white and Ojibwe people and ended with nine killed and 14 wounded. Boats came to rescue the troops, and most of the... Uh, Ojibwe warriors eventually turned themselves in and faced trial in Duluth. A judge sentenced the men to prison terms ranging from 60 days to 10 months, but no one in the group had to serve their entire term. A missionary from a neighboring tribe negotiated the men to receive full pardons from President McKinley, and by 1902, Congress had passed a law requiring timber companies to pay for any tree that was taken off of a reservation. Yeah. But the battle did more than just halt that shitty-ass practice. It also marked the mostly quiet, mostly forgotten, I had never learned of it until I read this, end to almost three centuries of warfare between white and native populations. This is often referred to as, like, the last major battle between white and indigenous people. Oh. Like, a major battle. Okay. But still. I mean, at least it stopped that practice. Okay, so I said it at the beginning. That was my tangent. I just thought it was fascinating. I needed to share it. 
Thank you. No, I didn't know about that. But back to the hotel. This all occurred, and that's what caused this space to be a morgue because these people that died or were injured were either treated there or waiting to be shipped back. So there was a space in this basement for them to be stored until they could be hauled out for burial. Then, in 1922, the proprietors Bert and Louisa Chase redesigned this hotel to become the Chase Hotel, an incredible hotel designed to be the future of Walker, Minnesota. They had appointed grand modern details. It was going to be a big deal. A newspaper announced that the grand opening was going to be one of the grandest events in the history of northern Minnesota. Damn. They obviously never went to uh, Fortune Bania. On June 8th, 1922, <laughs> nearly 400 guests came from all over the state, arriving by train, car, and even seaplane to attend the grand opening and officially dedicate the ceremonies to the new Chase Hotel on the shores of Leech Lake. They also built another modern upscale touring lodge called Hotel Isabel on a piece of land where the family once lived, mm -hmm. but that didn't get as successful. Dark history eventually followed which could explain part of its supernatural history because during a 1922 renovation, the son of the hotel founder, Louis Burt Woodruff Chase, suddenly died of pneumonia on May 27th, 1922. The grand opening, oh. which was only 11 days later, also served as a wake. Uh, oh, that's... Yeah. yeah. More tragedy continued. A fire in 1997 severely damaged the structure and it remained vacant until it was raised 10 years later in 2007. The current chase on the lake was opened in its place in 2008, but the spirits have uh, not left or been replaced. They just kind of like chill out to remind you of the history that was left behind. In case you're curious, this is listed in the National Register of Historic Places. I was curious, actually, yeah. According to hauntedjourneys.com, among the building's many spirits, some say they are the soldiers who died in the Battle of Sugar Point. Because they were stored in the basement, today, this is considered one of the most haunted parts of the hotel. And that is also where their bowling alley resides. Oh dear, not the bowling alley. Dude, I love bowling, and I'm just saying we haven't had a haunted bowling alley yet. That's what caught we my eye. We have not had a single haunted bowling alley. The front desk staff will secretly tell you, oh, yeah, this place is so haunted, because like any tourist town, the staff is a lot of high schoolers. <laughs> they will unanimously point you to the different parts of the building that are the hotbeds, the grand staircase, the bowling alley. Other employees have revealed stories of phantom children playing in the hallways, unplugged phones ringing, and the grandfather clock in the lobby apparently w might spit its key out from the lock. What? That's so weird. Why? In addition, the jukebox, which is also in the bowling alley in the basement, uh -huh. It will start to play without explanation, and they were clear that it is a jukebox that does not have a timer to just play random songs to keep things lively. But, but, Kayla, what songs does it play? I don't know. There was one story 
on one of these random posts mm-hmm. that said, and the guy was like, yeah, it was my favorite song, but really, was it your favorite song? And what song is it? Because you didn't name it. Yeah, if it was really your favorite song, why would you not be shouting that to high heaven? Like, dude, if a- You know how often Kayla sings all of her favorite songs? That's what I'm saying. Like, if a ghost fucking played Stupid Kid by Alkaline Trio, I would know that it was a ghost because that's not like a commonly chosen song in a jukebox. That's all I'm saying. Right. There's also uh, aggressive characters from the Lumberjack and Prohibition years, but they didn't give me more details on that. I'm just guessing maybe they wore plaid. That's how they know that's where they were from. (laughs) That really does not narrow down a <laughs> ghost in northern Minnesota. It's a hipster ghost. Yeah, it just wears plaid. <laughs> During a- Obviously, he's a lumberjack or a brewer <laughs> or just a college kid. I don't know. Fan of local music. During a 2007 renovation, they had displayed the family's original funeral garb from that funeral where we were talking about where the display was awake. At the grand opening. Yeah, the little kid. Yeah. The little kid that passed away. Actually, I don't know if he was a little kid. The son yeah. that passed away. So they had displayed it out as like a anniversary. And many witnessed wow. some of the original apparel swaying in unexplained gusts of wind, even though no wind was felt. So I just watched Beetlejuice on the plane back from San Diego. And what that reminds me of is when they have the wedding clothes laid out and then Otho like makes the dude Otho's a like appear. Otho was such a dick. But yeah, when they like starts like yeah they yeah. plump it up again, that's what I was thinking is happening. On hauntedhouses.com, a user posted on October twentieth of twenty nineteen with the post title Room twelve oh five. I have never believed in ghosts, but after this past week I have to. I was awakened at 2.50 a.m. to somebody crawling into bed with me. Oh. I could feel the movement of the covers, pillows, and the bed itself. I was convinced it was a real person, laid as still as I could, frozen and paralyzed in fear. I had not checked out what was under the bed when I went to bed and thought it was possible that maybe somebody was hidden under there. Oh, God. I managed to move very quickly and jump out of bed and turn the light on. But there was no one present in the room. I would say I don't know what is worse, but no, a real person would definitely be so much worse. (laughs) This was so real that I could not sleep the rest of the night. And the next night, I left lights on, as I was still very afraid. I told my friend about this the next morning. Neither one of us knew that Chase was thought to be haunted. The night before we left, my friend was at the bonfire when people started talking about the stories of this place being haunted unbelievable i have never had an encounter as such there were some other haunted stories on hauntedhouses.com and hauntedplaces.org which is where i was talking about the high schooler before that was like oh you totally play my favorite song but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if it's something you're interested in checking out take a peek because i didn't want to go too in depth because we're already already running a little over this week but it was definitely an interesting read into and I'm glad that Carolyn suggested it and Walker is only two and a half hours away from Duluth 
Kayla, it's an obtainable place that we can get to in a short amount of time. We can do a weekend there. I mean, if Steve expects us to do LibFest, we can do fucking Walker, Minnesota. I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I'm saying. They have bonfires. They have a lake. They got ghosts. Heck yeah. Y'all, it is midnight. <laughs> it is midnight. <laughs> I have heard Sean moving around. It is time for bed, so I'm not going to belay this any longer. It is time to go to sleep. But thank y'all for joining us this evening, and we love you all very much. If you have a listener story that you would like to send us, you can do so by visiting us on our website, www.leftiskeptic.com, and clicking the Listener Stories tab at the top of the page. You can also email us directly, leftofskeptic at gmail.com. You can also visit our link tree in our bio and click submit from there. You can choose to remain anonymous or include your name, whatever you prefer, whatever you're more comfortable with. We just ask that you please include your pronouns. You can also follow us on social media. We are on Instagram and Twitter at Left of Skeptic and Facebook at Left of Skeptic Podcast. We're also on TikTok at Left of Skeptic. I keep forgetting the TikTok. Thank you for reminding me. We're also on TikTok at Left of Skeptic. All right. Well, thank you very much. And all the things. Thank you very much for joining us and our uh, weird soundboard this evening. Okay. You're welcome. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 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 Wee wee Left of Skeptic podcast is written and hosted by Kayla Moria and Brittany Lind. This week's episode is edited by me, Brittany Lind. The Left of Skeptic music is by Dave Melling and Emily Havoc, and our artwork is by Al LeBlanc. Okay, bye!